and get comfortable. Now, uh, Steve did an awesome job with the announcements, went over all the details, but he missed the big one, that everybody under the age of 13 is looking for. And that is that after worship, there will be an Easter egg hunt. We've gone out, we've brushed all the snow off the front lawn, and uh, we've replaced it with Easter eggs, and so uh, right after worship, uh, we will be having an Easter egg. I call it more an Easter egg harvest than a hunt, but uh, um, you can hunt if you want. One other thing to mention, uh, next week is Compassion Sunday, and in addition to um, our contribution all going to the various causes that uh, we've, we've outlined, we're asking you to also bring some food items, uh, non-perishable food items, and we will uh, collect those and donate them to the food shelf. So uh, two ways for you to give next Sunday, uh, of course, through the, uh, the collection basket and, uh, or, or online, you can do it either way, and uh, through bringing food items. And uh, I think it's a tremendous way to share the gifts that we, we have For those of you who, who, uh, who don't know, my name is Peter. I've been the minister here at Lawson Road since 2008. I was raised in a Christian family. And so a lot of um, things that we do on a Sunday, a lot of things we talk about, have just always been part of my life. Very uh, familiar for uh, my whole life. I haven't, there have been things I've learned, but uh, a lot of things I've just picked up along the way. It was a natural part of my childhood. Now, I've forgotten an awful lot of my childhood. I have a terrible memory, and, uh, and I'll sit around the family dinner table, and they'll say, hey, what happened here? Do you remember this? Most of the time I say no. Uh, but there are things that, that I remember. And uh, some of those things are the exposure I had to Bible stories at a very early age. And I think that's how most people uh, become familiar with the Bible. We, we hear these stories, maybe in Sunday school, maybe in uh, you know, easy-to-read Bibles that we, we have at uh, home as children, maybe it's at VBS, or maybe it's just on movies or something that we picked up along the way as adults. But there's a good chance that if I put this picture up on the screen, everybody knows what this story is, right? That uh, the story of Noah's Ark is, is one that's almost universal. Uh, whether you're, you're Christian or not, you recognize that particular picture. And so many of us, I think, uh, learn the stories of Scripture first. That's our introduction to the Bible. And, and then, at least in my case, and, and we all come from different places, you know, so I'm sharing my experience. Uh, but what comes next for me was uh, learning to memorize Scripture. So it wasn't just the, the story about animals getting on a boat. It's like, is there a verse, is there a, a text that I need to remember, that I need to learn? And, and so when I was in elementary school, uh, my next-door neighbor uh, attended a local Baptist church, and she ran a good news club for several years. It is still, there is the organization that provided all the material to her those many years ago is still in existence and people are still running good news clubs today. And so she would hand out invitations in her neighborhood 
and uh, the kids would come into her living room. And she would, it was a small living room. We didn't get to play Twister or anything like that. It was sitting in cramped rows, but there were snacks. You know? So we went to, uh, to Good News Club in her living room, and, and it was there that I memorized my first Bible verse. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And, and so that was my first verse that I was, I was memorized. It was given to me as for homework at this Good News Club, and I came back the next week. Um, and, and, and so that's a process that has continued as I grew older, right? And sometimes I would intentionally memorize scriptures. Uh, sometimes you just pick them up, right? You hear them at church. They're said enough times that it just kind of gets embedded in your brain. Now, I'm terrible at remembering chapters and verses. Right? Um, I, I'm really bad at that. But the words, like they're in there. Um, they're not always in exactly the right order, but they're bouncing around. They've been in there for decades in my, in my head because I've heard them uh, and memorized them over the years. And, and so the great thing about that is that there are times when, when we face a decision, we face a situation in life, and we say, you know, that reminds me of this Bible verse, of this truth, of this teaching that God has given us that, that we can learn from and, and, and that we can apply in this situation because we've not just learned the, the stories that are fun about David and Goliath or Jesus walking on the water or all of that, but we, we learn these teachings or these truths that help us in situations. And, and so they are both essential elements of getting to know God, getting to know the stories, what he's done in the world, getting to know the teachings uh, as we come to know why he's done these things in the world and, and how we can be part of it. But I, I, as I've grown and, and aged and continued to learn, uh, one of the things that uh, I've come to appreciate is the importance not just of um, knowing these stories in these verses, but of understanding the way they fit together. Uh, I, I think very often we've had these stories and these verses and, and these teachings, and they're kind of like jigsaw puzzle pieces. And, and they've got a complete picture on each piece, a complete verse on each piece. And we hold it up and we go, look at this beautiful picture. Look at this beautiful verse. And, and we have them and, and they're, they, they seem complete in and of themselves. But oftentimes what we don't understand is how they go together. And so what I want us to, to come to understand is that all of these things go together. The way the Bible is written is not just an anthology of, of short stories. Right? Did you get one of those books when you were in high school and you had to read? And it's got like just a collection of, of short stories. And they're different genres, different authors, different styles. And... But, but there's nothing that really connects them except that they're all written in English. And, 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 and you have this anthology. And sometimes I think we come at Scripture like that. But what I want to suggest is that, that the way the Bible is put together is that it is bound together with threads that run all the way through. And most of these threads begin in the first chapters of the Bible. We're introduced to ideas, introduced to, to themes. In the, at the start of the book. 
And then over the the centuries that come, additional authors, additional writers, additional godly uh, men and women as they're moved by the Holy Spirit, they build on these ideas and they grow over time and, and they're fleshed out and they're applied in different ways and different attributes and characteristics of God are revealed. But ultimately, each of these threads leads us to Jesus. So one way to visualize these threads and how the Bible sort of continuously refers back to itself uh, is to uh, look at a a diagram. And uh, I want to, I don't know if everybody can see this clearly, but uh, around the outside we have the books of the Bible, the Old Testament in blue, the New Testament in in yellow. And uh, the the person that, that created this chart Uh, What they've done is they've said, okay, here's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and they're pretty similar books. We're going to make them all blue. And then we're going to show where they refer back to in the Old Testament. So there's a lot of them coming down here, aren't there? Um, And then some going up here. And and then it's not just the first three Gospels. It's also the Gospel of John is in green. John, interestingly, comes to a different part of the Old Testament, over here in the Psalms a lot. And then we can look at Hebrews, which is pretty thick. Up here it gets its own color purple. And then Revelation gets its own color red. And, uh, and so it's interesting when you look at Revelation and you go, wow, there's a lot of that that goes back to the Old Testament. So if we try to understand Revelation without first understanding the Old Testament, then we're not going to get very far. Because clearly the author of Revelation um, had a, a good grasp of what was going on in the Old Testament and applying it to his day and time. So we see the connections here between the different books of the Bible. Another way of representing this, this just shows between the New Testament and the Old Testament. But sometimes, what if Paul at some point quotes Jesus? That would be a connection within the New Testament. Or if a a prophet in the Old Testament quotes from the law of Moses, how does that show up? And so somebody else went to work and tried to say, where are all the connections throughout the Bible? And they came up with this chart. And it's a little hard to to see in this light. Uh, But um, down here, we have all the short connections that they're not very far. And here is Revelation referring all the way back to to Genesis. And uh, and it's a whole rainbow effect there. Um, Somewhere, according to this person, I have not double-checked them at all. I'd probably disagree with some of his connections that he draws. But uh, with 64,000 of them, then there'd be a whole lot that we probably agree on as well. So uh, it gives us this visual idea of the way that the Bible builds upon itself. Uh, The way these threads run and the ideas continue to grow as we read through. And so today uh, I want to describe how the death and the resurrection of Jesus fits one of just one of these threads that traces all the way back to Eden. Now, whenever we talk about Eden and creation, I feel that there's a, a real opportunity. I'm not sure if that's the correct word, but a real opportunity to get bogged down into arguments over faith and science, creation and evolution. And I'm not wanting to go there today. So I recognize that there may well be here today uh, different people with different ideas about all of that. Certainly across the span of Christianity, there's a, a wide range 
of understandings of exactly uh, the way that Genesis functions. But what I do want us to, to agree on is regardless of how we read or understand the Genesis, is that it reveals God to us. And, and it reveals how God interacts with us. And, and so Genesis teaches about the relationship that he desires with, his, with humanity. And so it's these principles that I want us to dwell on today. If we want to understand Easter, we need to begin at the beginning. The very first chapter of the Bible, uh, the first verse says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But he doesn't just create it all at once, all right? He doesn't just say, let there be a planet and let it be populated and let people be happy, boom, and it's there. Rather, God first creates the space. On the first three days of creation, he creates the spaces for those that will inhabit it. On day one, he creates um, light. Okay, No stars, no moon, no sun, just light. And of course, when you create light, you realize that there's been darkness. And so there's light and there's darkness. And next, he, he says, there's already water covering this, this earth. He says, I'm now going to separate the waters. And, and the understanding that the ancient people had of, of how the earth functioned or, or was um, structured was that there was kind of like a dome above the earth and that there was water up above and water below. And that water represented chaos. The water was something that couldn't be controlled. And, and God creates space in that chaos. And that was day two. And then on day three, God says, now I'm going to part the oceans and I'm going to bring land, something stable, something solid, something without chaos. And I'm going to create that. And so he has these three days of creating spaces. But on the third day, he gives us a bonus because he doesn't just create rocks, he puts plants on the earth and on the land. And then day four, now he starts populating the spaces and he puts the, the stars and the moon and the sun in the sky and that space that provides light, a reflection of who God is. God's light is first, the stars and the planets come second. And then on day five, he now puts the, the birds and the fish, you know, the fish below, the birds above, in that space that he created in the waters. And on day six, he puts the animals upon the earth. So it looks something like this. And then we can and of course, on day six, he creates humanity as the bonus, the cherry on top. And on day seven, we're told that God rests. And as God looks at each of these days' work, he checks it off and he says it was good. And at the end of each day, he says the evening and the morning were complete. The first day, the evening and the morning and the second day. And he goes down and, and evening and morning and a day's work is done and the next day begins. And then he gets to day seven and he rests. And day seven is interesting because in day seven there is no evening and morning. On day seven, it's just there, God's rest. 
On day seven, God doesn't say it's good or it's very good or it's very, very, very good. It's just day seven and God rests. And so God's rest continues. Uh, We experience God's rest. That's his intent for creation. His way of describing creation and, and his relationship with humanity is he says, okay, we're here together, let's rest. And day seven has no end. I'll get there. So why does God do all of this? What's, what's his goal? What's his purpose in doing all this? You know, there, there isn't a verse there in Genesis 1 or 2 or 3 that says, and I did all this for this reason. It just says it's what God did. But God rests within creation. I think this is, this is an important detail, that God doesn't step back from creation and rest. God steps into creation and rests. You see, his, his day seven is part of that creative process. It's not a withdrawal to let the, what happened on the six days just take care of itself. And so creation, and we will see particularly the Garden of Eden, the space, the special space that God created for humanity, it becomes, in effect, a temple a place where God and humanity can meet. Um, And together, God and humanity will oversee creation in harmony forever. Genesis chapter 1 and verse 28, God gives instructions to Adam and Eve. He says, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth, subdue it, rule over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, and every other living creature that moves on the ground. He gives humanity a responsibility to care for creation. They're not just put there to consume creation, but to rule, to care, to steward creation, and they do so with God. Sounds very idyllic, and it is. It's God's rest. But God didn't just make a clockwork toy. It's sometimes, I think, easy to think of this picture of creation and we say, okay, God put it all in motion. God, you know, created the the earth and then he flicked his finger and got it spinning, right? And then he he got this spinning earth and he sort of whizzed it around the sun and, and got all the planets and whizzed them at their particular trajectories and speeds around the sun. And then he got the, the solar system and he put that into the big one and he set that going. And you can picture God just throwing things out and everything spinning. And, and, and it works like this wonderful piece of clockwork that has spun on its own for all this time. But, but God did more than just that. He wasn't creating a machine to put into motion. You see, John, the the first letter of John, uh, tells us that God is love. Not, Not that God is loving, but that God is love. It is who He is. So when He creates, then He puts this piece of Himself into creation. And so He loves His creation. And of all the things love is, is fundamentally a choice. Okay, Love cannot be coerced. You ever tried that? 
You ever tried to tell someone that they have to love someone else? Right? Good luck with that. It's something that has to be chosen. And so God gives humanity a choice. And in the center of the garden, God places two trees. A tree of life and a tree of knowledge and good and evil. And so man and woman, they continue to eat from God's tree of life. And as they live, they're given this promise that they will live forever. That they will receive life from God that will sustain them. And they can continue to trust Him, to rely upon Him, to accept His care and His provision. But it's a choice. And so they have this opportunity. They can also choose to trust their own wisdom. They could choose to pursue their own knowledge. To to pursue their own knowledge of good and evil. And that's the name of that second tree. Because when they eat from that tree, they will now know good and evil for themselves. They'll know more if they eat from that tree than if they eat from the tree of life. You see, if they eat from the tree of life, they will only know good. But they say, no, we want to know more. What is this evil? And they eat from that. And and in doing that, they compete with God. They say, God, we want knowledge like you have. We want autonomy like you have. We want to make our own decisions like you do. But God warned them that this choice would also bring death into the world. Now, unfortunately... Our bad choices aren't always presented as starkly as this picture on the screen. You see, this may be the outcome, but on the front end, right? Nobody chooses the desert, the death, the suffering, the pain. We choose, we make these choices because we think it's going to lead to happiness. It's going to lead to joy. It looks good. It tastes good. I'm going to do it. But the outcomes are often not what we want. As Adam and Eve discovered, they gave in to this temptation to become like God rather than to trust God. And with that choice, sin entered the world and with sin came suffering, disease, and ultimately death. Do you remember what I said God's design was for creation? He intends to rest within creation in relationship with humanity. Creation, and particularly the Garden of Eden, has become a space in which God dwells. It functions like a temple, a meeting place between God and humanity. Now, humanity's rejection of God and His design has set them on a new trajectory, away from the Garden of Eden, away from what God has created for them. And God sends them from the garden, but He continues a loving relationship with them. Being sent from the garden did not send them from God's presence. It just sent them from the tree of life. Now I want to jump forward a long way. I said that the Bible's thematic threads run, all all run through Jesus. And so let's look at this one. In the birth of Jesus, God once again enters into his creation to experience relationship with humanity. There's a couple of verses up there from 
John chapter 1, but the very first verse of John 1 begins much like the very first word of Genesis 1. You see, John is making that connection for us. He says, in the beginning was the word, a name for Jesus, and he says, the word was with God, the word was God. But in the beginning was the word. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And so John makes says, hey, Jesus is a new creation. He's ushering in a new creation. He says, in him was life. That's a a creative thing. He says that life was light of all mankind. What was the first thing that God created? Light. Okay, Jesus is this new creation. The Word, then we're told, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Just as God's intent for creation and for the garden was for Him to come and dwell with and among His creation, Jesus is God in the flesh coming and living and dwelling among us his creation as one of us. Like in Eden, God has created proximity. He moved into our neighborhood and found a place to live. And so, in some ways, Jesus now functions as a temple, a meeting place between humanity and God. But that's just part of the thread. For the thread to keep running, we need a garden, we need a tree, and we need A choice. And the story of Jesus' death and resurrection is bookended by gardens. The night before his death, Jesus goes to a garden, the Garden of Gethsemane. And it's there that he goes to meet God. He goes to to pray and to, to talk to God there on the side of the Mount of Olives. And in this garden, we find people again making choices. As Judas, one of his trusted, beloved apostles, makes the choice to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And he comes to Jesus with a kiss that looks as though it's intimate, but in fact is a kiss, an act of betrayal. And lead Jesus is arrested. After his death, Jesus is buried again in a garden. In fact, in John chapter 20, verse 15, we looked at this last week as we talked about Mary Magdalene. She, she, when she first sees Jesus, the first person to see Jesus after his resurrection says, hey, you're the gardener. Tell me, where's the body? But I love that detail that of all the things, she doesn't say, hey, you're the butcher, you're the baker, you're the candlestick maker. She says, hey, you're the gardener. And, and I think in that little detail, there's a truth there that she had no idea about, that Jesus is the original gardener. He's the one through whom the garden was made at the very beginning. And and he is the one who has come as the new creator to to reestablish that garden, to restore that garden, to restore Eden, to restore God's desire for his people. Now in Jesus' time period, the, the Jews had come to refer to crucifixion as being hung on a tree. And they did this because in the book of Deuteronomy, uh, they'd been told that cursed is anyone who's hung on a tree. Okay, it was a, an act of shame to, to execute somebody that way, to, to display their body in that way. And even though they're dead, it was still a curse that was upon them. It was a death without dignity. And, and so the New Testament writers use this terminology that was common amongst the Jews, and and we find it in several places throughout Scripture, but we read earlier from Acts chapter 10, and in verse 39, the Apostle Peter there says, uh, describes Jesus as being killed by hanging him on a tree. 
And so in this series of events that are bookended by two gardens, we find a tree. And on that tree, we find Jesus. Jesus dies on a figurative tree, a cross made of wood. And the humans have made a choice. They've chosen again to reject God. This time, it's not just figurative. They say, we will nail him to that tree. But God has a plan. God always has a plan. And Jesus dies as a sinless human. He makes a choice to die, a choice to remain on the cross. And in this way, the tree of death becomes a tree of life. You see, the first tree, or, or the second tree, it brought death, didn't it? But this death on a tree brings life. And while the, um, in Jesus, the first fully obedient human brings life, just as the first disobedient humans brought death. And that is what Jesus accomplishes on the cross, that, that he takes this thread that has been running from the very beginning of Scripture and he reverses it. He changes it. He tugs on it. He ties a knot in it and says that part has ended. We're going to continue it with a difference. Because the story of Easter isn't just a miraculous event. It's a pivot in the course of time. The resurrection of Jesus, the empty tomb, it provides evidence that everything that was said about the cross, everything that was said about the forgiveness of sins, everything that was said was true. Because the tomb is empty. Everything that was said about Jesus, that he was more than a prophet, that he was more than a teacher, that he was more than an ordinary human, that he was in fact the Son of God, these audacious claims that the empty tomb says they were true because God raised him from the dead. And everything that is said about Eden is also true. That, that the desire that God has for relationship, that the way that was undone, that, that, that God is going to restore it, that He still desires this relationship. He still desires to live with and among His creation. And it gives us hope. Hope of new life, just as Jesus experienced new life. And it gives us a, an opportunity to make a choice. What is our choice going to be? Are we going to replay Eden? Are we going to choose a tree of life? But it isn't just a one-time choice. You see, the tree of life was not something that you ate off once and then you were good forever. The tree of life was something that you kept going back to. That's why the garden... Its gate was closed because God said, I don't want you to continue to eat from this tree and live forever. And so for us, the tree of life needs to be something that we keep going back to, that we keep growing, that we keep um, providing nutrition for ourselves. Do we trust God? Do we trust His provision? Do we trust His guidance, His wisdom, His leadership? The tomb is empty. It's a a great time of of joy because what was lost at Eden was recovered 
on this day all those years ago. And we get to be part of it. Thank you.